Turn in a copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. We are coming to an end of a section of Exodus. We've, we've gotten the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And so we are going to be looking at Exodus 18 today. And then we're going to be taking a break from Exodus for a month in the month of September. Looking at a great chapter of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, there's a lot going on there that's very helpful, and so we'll be taking a break. Uh, This morning, we look at Luke 18, not only because it's the next text, which is really fun, it's also the Sunday which every year we talk about uh, ruling elders and deacons. Um, And the Lord, the Holy Spirit has arranged preaching through this text for us to end up right here on this day. That's fun to see. Um, But let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for it contains the word of life. Um, We thank you that the word is true and inerrant, without error, it's authoritative. Thank you that it's alive, it's living and active. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, help us this morning to properly understand. Grow us in your grace, nourish our faith. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, starting at verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other, of their welfare, and went in to the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians uh, for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people came to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide one person and another and I, make known, uh, and, I make, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. 
Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them, uh, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that. peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Lord has throughout all of church history, both in the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, has ordained um, and has given church officers to his people to properly govern and care for them. When we get to the New Testament and Paul begins appointing elders in the churches that he has founded, this is not a new practice. In fact, if he had not done so, the new believers in Christ would have wondered, who's going to take care of us? Who's going to shepherd us? It is something that God's people had always done. And here in uh, Exodus 18, we have really the beginning of the official office of what will become what we know as elder. And in Acts 6, when the apostles call upon the people to, uh, to choose amongst themselves seven men to help them care for the poor and needy, who will be called deacons, or what is later called deacons, while the office is new, it is a New Testament office, the idea of representative and servant leadership within the people of God, are principles that have been around a long, long time. Next week, our, we will open up our nominations for officers, for the office of ruling elder and deacon. And every um, communing member is able to nominate men whom they believe, uh, by the God's leading and the agreement of the person whom they like to nominate, uh, to that office. This process will be open for a month, and we'll have more information about the logistics uh, of of what that looks like next week. Um, But before we get to the bits of leadership in this text, I just very briefly want to talk about what's going on in verses 1 through 12. It's a great text that deserves a lot of time in and of itself. We find ourselves at Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, same place. And we're not entirely sure where this text finds us in terms of chronology. Um, it's placed between chapter 17 and 19 in, in what became the final edition of Exodus that Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God's Word. It is true. Um, but then in 19, we find that they arrive at the Mount of God. So it is possible that this is an account that happens a little later, this place here thematically. That, that's allowed. That's a, a good way to do things. Um, so we're not entirely sure when this is. But we're at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb. And um, God has sent, uh, is, has prompted Jethro, it's time to take Zipporah and the two boys, 
uh, Gershom and Eleazar, or Eliezer rather, Moses's two boys, time to take them back to Moses. It seems at some point Moses had sent his wife and two boys away to, spend, to, to live with Jethro, his father-in-law, probably when things got a little hairy with Pharaoh. And now it's time to return. Well, who is Jethro? We've seen him before, but, but Jethro is described here as the chief of Midian. He's not a chief of Yahweh, uh, uh, um, priest, not chief. He is not a priest of Yahweh. He is a pagan priest. He is a priest of a false god, but he is here described as the priest of Midian. And it is likely that he's not just a priest, he is the chief priest of the whole order of pagan priests. And he comes and he brings the family of Moses, and then Moses sits down with him and does something really important. He shares his testimony. He tells Jethro all that the Lord God had done for the people of Israel. And he includes the hard times and how God had saved them out of it. And by the end of this passage, we have Jethro, potentially the chief priest of a whole order of pagan priests, becoming a believer. He's converted. We see this especially in verse 11. Now I know, Jethro says, that the Lord, Yahweh, all caps here, is greater than all gods. You know, we all have a testimony to give if we're believers in Christ Jesus. We all have a testimony of what God has done in our lives. And how many times has God used the personal testimonies of His people to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus? You have a story. I have a story. Do our neighbors know our story of what Christ has done for us? Do our friends know our testimonies of God's goodness and grace in our lives? We see here that God uses the testimony of Moses to bring the saving faith, not just any man, but the chief priest of an order of pagan priests. I kind of wonder what Jethro would have faced when he got back. We don't read anything of Jethro after this. I wonder if he was stoned for believing in the one true God. I wonder if other priests caught the revival fire And a whole group of people came to know Jesus. We don't know. We don't know. But here we have salvation. So share your testimony. But let's shift gears here. Um, uh, Exodus chapter 18 is really the best text in the Old Testament in terms of talking about how God's people um, are governed in the Old Testament. We really begin to see here the beginning of what becomes the office of elder. God's people had always had elders. We've read of elders already in Exodus. But now they they are becoming um, not self-appointed, not just chosen within the tribe, not just part of a tribe, an elder of a specific tribe, but elders of the whole people of God, not just one clan. But think about this. There's a real problem. There's a real problem in this text. Moses the day after Jethro's conversion, goes out and he sits down and all these people start coming to him. And from morning till evening, it's not even clear if the text tells us that that they got done. It seems that the, the business is unfinished. From morning till evening, people stand around him and he adjudicates, he judges for them. From the smallest matters to the largest. And he sits alone doing it by himself. 
Now remember, there are between two and three million Israelites. Can you imagine if the state of Alabama, what do we have, four and a half, five million people-ish? Between one and two judges, we'll say two to be fair, two judges for the entire state of Alabama to deal with everything from a parking ticket to a murder charge. Talk about a backlog, right? Uh, it's been said by many that delayed justice is uh, just no justice at all. Um, for you gardeners, um, you know what a trellis and a vine is, right? Often the church has been described as a trellis and a vine. In order for a vine to grow well, it has to have a trellis that is large enough and is um, designed for that vine. Are the, are the gaps too big? Are they too small? Is it wide enough? Is it tall enough? Is it something that's going to grow tall or just wide? It has to be just right. The vine needs a proper-sized trellis to support it. Within the church of God, within the people of God, we might compare the people of God to a vine. And you have to have a trellis, a structure, to allow the vine to grow well to be healthy. And in this situation, the vine was way too big for an itty-bitty little trellis. Moses, the trellis of the structure, the organizational structure of Israel, was tiny and insufficient by orders of magnitude to be able to care for the vine of God's people. Jethro looks at this situation. He's just become a believer, but he has some worldly experience. He's a smart dude. And he says in verse 17, Look, silly... That's the, that's the southern version. What, are you, what you're doing is not good. In the Hebrew, this is very strong. You and the people with you, you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy. You're not able to do it alone. It was bad for Moses because he couldn't bear up the responsibility. And it was bad for the people because they weren't getting the justice as they needed it. Put yourself in our context. We think, think about that and apply it to our context. One person cannot minister to the whole congregation, pastor all the needs, visit all the sick, make all the decisions, manage the budget, take care of the property, plan for the future, disciple new believers, evangelize the lost, teach the children, young, youth, marriage, career, elderly. No one, can, uh, no one person can help meet the needs of, of all the poor, the emotional needs of those who are mourning, the catechesis of new members, training of new officers, and the preaching and teaching roles. No one person can look at all the issues from all the angles and make the right decisions, contact and support all the missionaries, oversee the kitchen, and pray for the community. No one person can do all that. And so God in His wisdom has granted the solution of church officers. Church officers. We see that here in this text and we see it in our lives now. We need more than one person doing the work. And so Jethro says, look, Moses, you can't do this yourself. You need help. And he tells Moses to choose godly men who will help bear the burden. There's much we can learn about the roles, um, the roles and qualifications of officers in our church today. You'll find in your bulletin today a um, double-sided insert looks like this. This is, uh, contains two lists. 
one for the qualifications of elders, and the other a job description and qualification for deacons. Um, as we begin nominations next week, I encourage you, and I would say I charge you, that before you put someone's name down on a piece of paper, that you read through this and pray through to make sure that the, the man whom you're uh, nominating uh, fits these qualifications. We get, many of these quali- we get these qualifications from Acts 6, Titus 1, and 1 Timothy 3. But we learn a lot in principle from our text this morning, and we'll be focusing on this text this morning as we talk about the qualifications of elders and deacons. There are some church governments uh, in which the, the pastor or the priest makes all the decisions. And y'all, I can't imagine being a pastor in that kind of situation. Uh, the Roman Catholic view, uh, the Episcopal view, the local priest basically makes all the decisions. There's some nuance there, but that's, that's basically what happens. But here at the first Israelite Presbyterian church of Mount Sinai and that of Bruton, um, through Jethro, we see the institution Uh, in which there's a a new system to help Moses. The first thing we see is that there is a, um, that that we are called to have a plurality of officers. Plurality, all it means is plural, to have more than one. One person is not meant to carry all this load, but we are to do it together. Uh, Moses was called to choose folks who would um, structurally look over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and of tens. And we don't know if this is talking um, specifically about down to tens units or if this is talking generally of a structure uh, that would care for the people uh, on a large and small basis. We're, we're not sure. The old adage of divide and conquer is an important one in any organization, and we have that here at our church. We have two different types of officers. We have elders and we have deacons. Um, What does an elder do? What does an elder do? Well, an an elder is tasked by God to be a pastor, a shepherd, a teacher, a caretaker of the soul of the congregation. The group of elders who are currently serving, you'll find on the back of your bulletin, they're called the session. Uh, those who are currently serving. The session is charged with, with shepherding the flock and exercising oversight over it. Locally, the session makes the final decisions on big matters. They are tasked with the oversight of the worship services and making sure that what is preached from the pulpit and taught in the Sunday schools is theologically correct. I think I've shared this with you, but um, I was once talking to Sean about it gives me delight to know that as I, because I serve with other elders who love Jesus and know the Word, that if I ever preached a heretical sermon, that it would be my last sermon here. And he said, Parker, you wouldn't finish that sermon. Um, and that's why we have elders who we work together. and They make sure what I preach is theologically correct, and we together have oversight of the church. We are called as elders to be an example to the flock and to guard the flock. And to pastor the flock. And when a a member of the flock strays, we are called to pursue and admonish and at times discipline those who are running from God. We have two types of elders in the Presbyterian form of government. And there's a a hint of this here. Um, We have teaching elders and ruling elders. A teaching elder is one who has been to seminary and like Mark completed yesterday, has been examined by Presbytery. uh, And our teaching elders are able to preach uh, regularly and to do the sacraments and to marry folks. Ruling elders come from the local congregation. 
and are called to serve on the session together as we seek to shepherd God's flock. We see a little bit of this division here. It's it's not a a one-to-one correlation. We see the principle here. Because Jethro tells Moses, says, look, you're going to be freed up to declare to the people uh, the word of God and how they are meant to walk in his statutes. And these men that you're appointing, they're going to help you by ruling and taking care of much of the shepherding duties that will allow you to have this prophetic role. I'm not a prophet, praise Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the final and best prophet. Uh, and His word is the prophetic word. But the role of a pastor is prophetic in nature, and the pastor declares, thus saith the Lord. Um, so we have a little bit of that division here. We also have in our church deacons. Now this doesn't come about until Acts chapter 6. Um, what was happening in Acts chapter 6 is that the apostles were being pulled away from preaching and teaching the Word of God. They were being pulled away because they had a very important job of making sure the poor and the widows received their daily distribution of food. Now it was so important that if they didn't do it, people died. That's pretty important. So it had to be done. But they couldn't do it all. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles told the people, choose for us seven men with all these qualifications. We'll ordain them. And they will now be in charge of caring for the poor and the widow. As we get through the New Testament, we see this is the, really the first diaconate, the first board of deacons. We must say that uh, deacons are called to an equally important role as the elders. And that is really important for us to say. There are some Presbyterian churches in which the diaconate is seen uh, as a stepping stone to the session. The session is the real job, and the diaconate is the trial job, uh, the lesser job. And that's just not true. They're two very different roles. They're two very different callings. And sometimes you have men who are gifted in both ways, but usually not. Usually men are gifted in one of two ways. The role of elder is a spiritual office that seeks the oversight and care of souls. And the office of, um, of deacon is a spiritual, it is a godly thing, but it is a practical, service, uh, practical office of service in which the deacons are called to um, help develop the gift of giving in the church, to care for the community, to make sure the poor and the widow are taken care of, to care for the property of the church, to visit the infirm, Make sure that our people are cared for. They're both very important roles. Well, Jethro gives qualifications to Moses. The first is, we found in verse verse 21, we have a, a summary here. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. The first thing is we must say these were men. There are Hebrew words for humanity or everyone or people or mankind, and that word is not used here. It is the specific word for a male. Um, God has ordained in the household that men serve as leaders of their homes. This is the pattern of creation and the pattern for the church, that men are called to have ordained office. That doesn't mean that women are inferior or don't have a role to play in the church, period. Do not hear me say that. 
The, church, the women of this church play a very important role in this congregation. But in terms of ordained leadership, that is reserved for men. They are to be able men. Uh, this refers to someone who is respected and influential, people who is, someone who is looked up to by the community that will use their abilities for the needs uh, for the community. They are morally and physically worthy. We see more of this fleshed out in 1 Timothy 3, Acts 6, and Titus 1, which you have all that explained on this handout. But imagine some of the difficulties of choosing elders in Moses' day. To make sure these were able men, when you have two to three million people, you can imagine that there would be some who would say, it's my turn. Or, don't you know my family? Or, don't you know I've given this much money? You see all that stuff that's going into the treasury for the tabernacle later, to the temple. Doesn't, Doesn't that mean that I get to serve as a... That's not how it works. This is a... A, a, an office. These two offices are men who love Jesus and are not qualified by these outward things, but with a heart that is right with the Lord. And that's the second qualification or third qualification. They must fear the Lord. Elders and deacons are called to be spiritually mature men, men who have vibrant walks with Jesus. Why is this true? Well, because it's nice when things bebop along at home and at church and at school and play. Isn't that right? That's great. But inevitably there are problems. There's conflict to be dealt with. And we need spiritually mature men who are able to help navigate through these things. They must be trustworthy. Must be a man of his word who does what he says he will do. He must hate a bribe, meaning he is impartial and not driven by personal gain. Later in Deuteronomy we see um, Moses also ascribed to this man someone who is wise, who is able to use knowledge in a godly way to make decisions. He must be experienced. And that's not to say that only, you can only nominate men who have served already in office, because then we get no new officers. But it does mean those who we nominate need to be doing uh, work already within the church, who have been tested and are able to prove themselves ready. They must also be understanding Someone who is kind and gentle and perceptive. Now here's the thing. If you find a perfect elder or deacon, run. Because they don't exist. None of us are, are worthy to, be, to serve as officers in the church in and of ourselves, period. But I also don't want to remove the high standard for serving as an officer in God's church. These are high standards for a reason, so that we would be without reproach, that we would bring glory to Christ. This is also a representative form of government. This is key to a Presbyterian form of government. Jethro tells Moses in verse 21 to choose these men. Well, it turns out later in Deuteronomy 1 that the way these men are chosen, the way Moses chooses these men is by telling the people to choose the men amongst themselves for this role. We see this in Deuteronomy 1, 13 and 14. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should be. This is how we do it. This is how the Presbyterian former government works. We nominate men who will have authority over us. 
We nominate men who are examined by the session to make sure that they are ready for the uh, call uh, to office that, that you have given them. Make sure that call is from the Lord as well. And these men have authority over our congregation. Israel was not a democracy, and nor are we. In a democracy, everyone votes on every decision. This is a representative form of government in which we elect those men who will have authority over us and make decisions on behalf of the people. And that's exactly what's going on here at the edge of Mount Sinai. But we should make sure we say in closing that, or ask the question, who is the head of the Israelite church? Who is the head of First Presbyterian Church? Is it the session? No. Is it the pastor? No. In culture, you say, hey, who's the head of that church? You would say the pastor. Well, that's wrong. I'm not the head of this church. The deacon's not head of this church. Who is the head of this church? Christ is the head of this church. Then and now, Old Testament and New, Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, and He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. This is really important. This isn't something we should just pay lip service to because how did Christ serve us? How does He lead us? Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served. And y'all, that word there is deacon. The verb form deacon. He did not come to be deaconed, to be served, but to deacon, to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. How has Christ served the church? He has served the church by laying down His life for her. How do we have life? How do we have salvation? It's because the chief shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who said, I am the good shepherd. How did He become the the good shepherd? He became the good shepherd. He was the good shepherd because He was also the Lamb of God. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23 and he is the Lamb of God who has laid down his life to take away the sins of all those who put their trust in him. He does this free, without charge. He says, come and eat without money. Come drink. Why do you spend your money on things that don't satisfy? Come to me. He says in John 11, come to me and I will give you rest. This is our gentle shepherd. This is our good shepherd. This is our cornerstone. This is the sure foundation of the church. He leads us and guides us. Why? Because He loves us and He has laid down His life for you. Did you know that your shepherd, your Savior, has laid down His life for you? That even as Mark said earlier in the children's sermon, that if we, when we come to know Jesus, we have everlasting, eternal life. It begins now and it goes all for uh, eternity future. There will never be a day in which you do not exist. Think about that. There will never be a day in which you do not exist. Your consciousness that you have now is yours now and forever. And the question is, will it be in hell or heaven? Eternal consciousness in hell going through eternal destruction is a terrible thing. And this is what Christ went through on the cross for you and me. Our great shepherd of the sheep, our elder. He laid down his life for us. That we might have everlasting eternal life. That we might live with him forever. That we might have our sins forgiven. And live with him forever. Do you know this good shepherd? 
He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, our Savior Jesus, we thank You that You're the Good Shepherd. You're the Savior of the sheep. And You lead us and You guide us. And through the death's dark valley, You lead us. For You, O Christ, have walked through that valley. You have died and been raised from the dead that we might have life in You. Lord, we pray that You would superintend this process of nominations for elder and deacon. That You would raise up men ready to serve. Lord, that are not worthy in their own right, for none of us are. But Lord, who are resting in You, guide us, lead us, O great Jehovah. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.